My text is from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Just like the parable of the persistent widow, which we looked at last week, Luke tells us who this parable was written for and what the theme is. It's for those who tend to divide the world into two. There are people who are like me and are righteous, and there are people who are sinners like you, and you are ruining everything. He says it's for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Of course, that way of thinking has become synonymous with the word Pharisee, but that was not how the Pharisees were viewed when Jesus spoke this parable. He spoke this parable to those who have the spirit that all of us have, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God and fight against it. It's the idea that I'm obviously a good person, And you, obviously, are a bad person. At the conclusion of this parable, Jesus uses the word justified. It's a different form of the same word that he uses in the beginning that he translates righteous. It means to be declared righteous. That's what justified means. So righteous and just, they're different words in the English language, but they're the same word in the Greek language. What it means in the scripture is to be completely conformed to the standard of God's law. We saw that when we looked at the Heidelberg Catechism on covetousness this morning, that not even the least thought or inclination against any of the commandments of God ever enter our heart. Of course, even from the Old Testament standard, which talks about the outward show, in this verse, Deuteronomy 27, it says, Cursed is everyone who does not confirm all the words of this law. In other words, you go through the simple understanding of the Ten Commandments and all of us have fallen short without even considering the attitude of the heart. It's a part of our nature to believe that we're naturally good people. We're born with a moral nature as image bearers of God. Nobody wants to be a bad person. Well, at least they don't want to be known as a bad person. We don't want parents to hide their children when we come into the room. We don't want people to lock their doors when they see us coming. We're created with a deep moral sense, and we have this desire to be accepted, to be loved, to be known as good and kind. But because of the, the heart is deceitful, the heart convinces us that God's assessment of our goodness is substantially the same as our own assessment. In other words, we tend to think, because I think I'm a pretty good person, God obviously thinks I'm a good person as well. And if we can get a whole lot of people to agree that I'm a pretty good person, 
then obviously God will have to go along. And so this parable is spoken to everyone who considers themselves to be righteous. And it always goes hand in hand with the second part. They despise others, those who are not righteous. But in the end, God's declaration might actually be totally different. There's two characters in this parable. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Jesus could not have picked two people more opposite, on the opposite ends of the spectrum. As I said, the Pharisee, today we use Pharisee as an insult for someone, but it was not the case back then. The Pharisee was the highest pinnacle of righteousness. It's what people aspired to be. When you thought of a good person, you thought of a Pharisee. When you thought of someone who keeps the law, you thought of a Pharisee. These were the experts. These were the ones who were known as zealous for the law of God. This parable needs to be soberly considered. For there's a man in this parable that has spent his whole life thinking of himself and being told by everyone else that he's a good man. He would say it's by God's grace that I'm a good man. He would confess that he makes mistakes now and then, but at least he's not as bad as that guy over there. This man who thinks that is not unfamiliar with scripture. He knows the Old Testament perfectly. He isn't a pagan. He isn't an atheist. He isn't a Gentile. He's a Pharisee. He's the expert in religion, trained thoroughly in all the scriptures, well known for his zealousness and good works. He understands himself to be a child of Abraham, an heir to the promise by grace. He's part of the people of God. He's circumcised. He's thankful to God. He's an upstanding member of society. He's well-regarded, well-respected. He's horrified by sin and committed to living a godly life. And yet when he dies and stands before the judge, the judge gives the verdict. You are not righteous. You are condemned. You are cursed, for you are a sinner, an alien from the promises of God. You are fit only to be cast into outer darkness. I never knew you. We need to take this parable seriously. Jesus is talking about very serious things. The second character in this parable is the tax collector. We live 2,000 years after this culture And so the horror of a tax collector in the years of the Jewish audience is somewhat lost on us. If you're thinking an IRS agent, you're missing the point. It's necessary for the impact of this parable that we understand the emotional issues involved with the concept of a tax collector. Rome, who was occupying Judah at the time, had an organized way of collecting taxes, uh, just like they organized everything. That was the genius of Rome, not only their armies, but their organization. Gathering taxes themselves would have been a monumental task and very costly, and they didn't want to bother, so they franchised it out. Large areas of their conquest, large areas of their provinces would be sold to a chief tax collector. He would be a man wealthy enough to buy the area and then pay the annual fee. That's how Rome made their money, was through the annual fee that they only collected from one guy, the tax collector. 
The tax collector would then tax people on the trade routes, the sales in the shops, the, the merchants traveling, the tradesmen, the townspeople. And then he would send the Roman portion, the appropriate amount, and he would keep the rest. There were no laws with how much or how little a tax collector could charge. He could charge whatever he wanted, and he would have the armies of Rome to back him up. They didn't generally sell franchises to Roman citizens. They sold the franchises to the local citizens. Rome preferred using local citizens because the local citizens knew their communities, knew where money was hidden, knew the trade routes, knew who was collecting money, knew who the merchants were. We're going to meet one of these tax collectors in the next chapter, a man named Zacchaeus. The chief tax collector sold the smaller franchises to regular tax collectors. Israel considered tax collectors to be the scourge of the world. They considered themselves to be victims of Roman occupation. Rome considered Israel, on the other hand, to be a province. And so they crucified rebels as traitors. And so there were, needless to say, extremely hard feelings between the pious Israelite and the tax collector. To be fair to the pious Israelite, the tax collectors were generally the most horrible sort of people. They were greedy, oppressive, violent, traitors of their countrymen, all in the drive to make money. They were driven by covetousness, They would sell their own families to Rome if it meant a profit for themselves. At least most of them were like that. But they were all viewed like that in the eyes of Israel. To emphasize the repulsive aspect of this parable in the minds of the hearers, we in the modern day would not use the term tax collector, but a term that would signify heartless, cold, cruel, compassionless drive for more and more money even over the destruction or enslavement of your entire family and community. We could think drug dealers, pimps, traffickers, mafia bosses, robber barons, the worst of the worst. Who is it that you would put in the category of a tax collector whom you consider to be the worst sinner of them all? That's who to put in this parable. And yet Jesus says in the eyes of God, the just judge of the whole world, the tax collector was considered and declared to be righteous and blessed by God. This is why we need to pay very close attention to this parable, because things are not as they appear in our minds. The Pharisee knew that he was righteous, but God declared him to be unrighteous. The tax collector knew that he was not righteous, but God declared him to be righteous. Everything's backwards, isn't it? Doesn't this mean that God is unjust, declaring the sinner to be righteous and declaring the righteous to be a sinner? It seems to us as if God can't do that. That's unjust. We all know that there are sinners in the world. And we all suspect deep down inside that we are not in that category. At least not really. Maybe kind of. It offends our moral sensibility to think that God declares the unrighteous to be righteous. 
And then he declares those who are righteous to be unrighteous. The tax collector, by any standard, was a sinner. I'm not denying that at all. The Pharisee, by any human standard, was righteous. But Jesus said something shocking in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of a Pharisee, you won't enter heaven. The righteousness that the Pharisee achieved was the pinnacle of human effort. Even Paul, who was trained a Pharisee, said that according to the law, he was blameless. But Jesus said it isn't enough. The Pharisees believed that a sinner could be converted, that he could be forgiven, that he could have his sins washed away. That's what the Day of Atonement was all about. But then after that, they had to live a righteous life in order to be declared righteous by God. It seems obvious. You have to do more righteous works than evil works in order to be declared righteous. And the Pharisee was very proud of their achievements. But God's standards are not the same as human standards. The catch is God sees the heart. He sees what we fantasize about. He knows what we would do if we had the opportunity to do it. He knows what our bent is. He knows what we would do if we were provoked. Agatha Christie's detective Hercule Poirot said, everyone is a murderer if they have the right provocation. And he's right. We don't know what would provoke us to commit murder, but God does. Paul said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The time came for these Pharisees when the conditions were right and their pretenses were stripped away. And they committed the worst crime ever committed among humankind when they crucified the Lord of glory. And each one of us, each one of us, even now, after we have been converted, have in our hearts the seeds of the most vile acts imaginable. We have the seeds of betrayal, of lying, of adultery, of stealing, of slander, of blasphemy, All those seeds are still in our heart. If the conditions were right, and if God were not merciful, that's where we would go. This is what the Pharisee missed, but it's what the tax collector saw. What will you do when what you really value is threatened? This is why... Our catechism teaches, why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? The answer is because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and entirely conformable to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. As a very simple example, it should get all of us. God requires that we be thankful to him. He has created us. He's given us every good thing and he requires that we're thankful. It is very simple. 
When everything is going well, when the pantry is full, the bank account is good, you've got a job that you love, your family is all gazing at you adoringly, your children are all very well behaved, it's very easy to say, I'm so blessed by God and I'm so thankful. But what if you've been thrown into prison like John Bunyan was? What if you lose your family? What if your friends betray you? What if you're broke and hungry and cold and homeless? I was reading a book on church history this past week and reading how many ministers of the gospel have been exiled for preaching the truth. Chris Austin died in a rainstorm while he was exiled for his preaching. Can we be thankful then? Can we say, yes, God, I'm so thankful and my thankfulness is supreme and therefore you have to accept it as my good work? John Calvin says only a perfect righteousness can stand in the judgment and the Christian can only have such righteousness outside of himself and in the perfection of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, you may work your fingers to the bone, but you can never weave a righteousness that shall cover your nakedness before God. I want you to keep a distinction in mind so that we don't go foolish on this. In the Bible, there is relative righteousness. It's better to not commit adultery than it is to commit adultery. It's good to not bash your enemy over the head with a hammer. It's good to give the poor. It's good to work hard. It's good to support the ministry of the word. It's good to keep your word and to deal kindly with your neighbor. Those things are good. And as Christians, we should strive to do those things. There are many throughout scripture that are called righteous or blameless. Sometimes it means in this particular quarrel, this person was right. And thus David was considered righteous in his quarrel with Saul. Sometimes it means in the eyes of men without reproach. Paul says bishops should be blameless. Zechariah and Elizabeth were called righteous. That kind of righteousness isn't what this parable is about. Notice both of them are in the temple. Both of them are praying towards God. Jesus is talking about the righteousness that gives us standing before God. It's how we view ourselves in prayer and in the temple. He's talking about the spirit of the Pharisee standing in prayer and thanking God that he isn't like other men. Well, like that guy. I know human nature as well. I know that just like today, there were those in Jesus' audience that would say, Jesus is always harping on people. I know that guy. He's a good guy. I don't know anybody that thinks like that. I really don't. I don't know anybody that ever says things like that. This is actually a prayer from the Talmud, from Jesus' day, that's carried down to our day today. I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast put my part with those who sit in the academy and not with those who sit in the corners, like the money changers and the traders. Jesus is almost directly quoting a common prayer at the time. The proud Pharisee was thankful to God that he wasn't like that guy. He expected his reward for his hard work. But notice his prayer. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't plead for mercy because he doesn't need it. He doesn't ask for righteousness or forgiveness because he doesn't need it. As Alfred Edersheim puts it, the Pharisee retains the righteousness which he had claimed for himself, whatever it's worth. The publican receives the righteousness which he asks for, 
and so both have what they desire of God. The Pharisee said in his heart, Thank you for the righteousness that I already have, which I know is good enough. And the tax collector said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. The only righteousness that can stand before God is a righteousness that's outside ourselves. Ours will never ever, from this point until the day we die, ever be even close to good enough to stand before God. This is why I will never preach the law as a way to gain favor with God. I'll never teach anyone to boast about anything that we will accomplish in this life. I will never encourage anyone to look at their good works for the assurance of their faith. I will always point to Christ, the righteousness of another, put on our account, the righteousness that isn't ours. We could stand on the street corner today and we could pray, Lord, I thank God I'm not like other men. I've never had an abortion. I don't support candidates that do. I've never been same-sex attracted. I've never voted Democrat. I've never, and on and on and on it goes. And we would match the prayers throughout this country. But those are not Christian prayers. It's the prayer of the Pharisee. The righteousness that will stand before God has to be outside of ourselves. It's a righteousness that isn't ours. It's free. It was given to a tax collector simply because he asked. The Pharisee didn't receive that righteousness because he didn't ask. He got what he asked for, which was nothing. The tax collector, as vile and repulsive as he was, received what he asked for, which was mercy. He received mercy by God declaring him to be righteous. The righteousness which is from God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ put on my account so that now my standing before God has changed. I'm now in Christ and all that is his is mine and all of my sin and all of my corruption is his put to death on the cross. And even though I will still struggle with it, my sinful nature, my whole life, that the only way I can actually struggle and not lose all hope is if I know for certain that no matter what happens in this life, Jesus' perfect righteousness will never change. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. A very popular writer in Reform circles today has recently written that God's love for his people goes up and down based upon our keeping of the law. This is what's infiltrating reform circles. I will always fight against it. How can you fight against your sinful nature if you believe that God hates you the second you step out of line? And so we cling to the cross even when we struggle with sin and we cling to the cross. And when we do, we can be honest about our sinful nature. We can say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't have any strength. I know that murder, adultery, theft, blasphemy are all possible for me if you do not have mercy on me. I know that I would be taken outside the camp and stoned with stones until I die unless you have mercy on me. 
I know that I'm an unclean thing, fit only for the fire if you do not have mercy on me. Like every publican, every single person who has ever asked for mercy from God has received it. No exceptions. Everyone who asks to be clothed and cleansed and washed and covered receives it. No one has ever turned away. For God delights to hear prayer. And so we can lift up our heads, we can rest in his promise, and we, like the publican, can go back to our houses today justified, righteous, before God. For God resists the proud. They get what they ask for. They want recompense for their works. They want kudos for their service. They want paid what they are owed. That law is the law of merit. God honors it. That's what we want. They don't ask God to show mercy for they don't need it. They don't ask for Christ's righteousness to be put on their account because they don't need it. And so they don't receive it. And like this Pharisee, they go away unjustified. The biblical word for that is condemned. Not righteousness. Your greed, your covetousness, your idolatry, your fornication, your murder, your blasphemy is all still on your record and you will bear it alone. The purpose of this parable is for us to think soberly about this question. Do you really want to stand before God on the basis of your works? The tax collector was the sinner. He knew what kind of a man he was. He knew what a disaster he has made of his life. He didn't even know how to fix it. He didn't even walk into the temple. He just stood at the door peeking in. He didn't deserve a place there. He didn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He said, Lord, I need something I don't have. I don't even know how to ask for it. I need mercy because I am the sinner. The other application is this. Because Jesus tells this parable, you won't generally find those in the church who are so blatant about this Pharisee's prayer. The spirit is the same. You can tell what they believe about their works by their attitudes towards others. The tax collector was indeed a sinner. We covered that. No matter what kind of a sinner someone is, human nature shows us that they can always point to someone worse than they are. And so their prayer is, well, Lord, I might have sinned here, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm not as this person over here. Cain says, at least I'm not like Abel. But this tax collector wasn't doing that. He was too busy pleading for mercy. This is the one thing that Jesus emphasizes over and over in his ministry. When you know the amount of debt you owe, when you know the depth of your own sins, when you understand the depravity of your own heart, you have no more taste for despising anyone. What you want is for the world to know Jesus so that they also can find life. We don't pray the Pharisees' prayer that blatantly. We usually turn it into the guise of prayer requests. I pray that you'll... I just would like prayer for my my brother. You know, he just... I know he just thinks of fornication all the time and, and he's really angry and he does a lot of reviling and he's kind of a drunk and, you know, that's how we do it. 
But once you know Christ, we say to ourselves, how can, how can I fix you? I can't even fix me. All I can do is point you to the one who can show mercy and who has promised, who can never lie. How can you tell that this Pharisee didn't understand the nature of his own sin? He despised others. This tax collector. Look at that guy. Now, don't get me wrong. The point is not this tax collector was pretty good and the Pharisee didn't recognize it. No, he was a sinner. He was a horrible sinner, the worst sort. The Pharisee naturally believed that God and the world would be better off without that guy. But if God came in judgment, who would be left? This is Jesus' point. If God did not show mercy, not only would the, Pharisee, the tax collector be taken away, but so also would the Pharisee. The question Jesus asked is this. If God judged you or me by the same standard we use to judge everyone else, would we stand in judgment? It's interesting how this is practiced even among Jesus' 12 disciples. There were two of his disciples we don't pay a lot of attention to that are as far apart politically as any two people possibly could be. There was Matthew, who was a tax collector. He believed that cooperating with Rome was a bit, was a, wasn't a bad way to go. A man needs to make a living and we are occupied whether we want to be or not, so we might as well be at peace and go with it. Even after he was converted, he still would have thought along those lines. That's how he thought his whole life. There was another guy who was one of Jesus' disciples called Simon the Zealot. The Zealot believed that the world would be a lot better place if every tax collector was taken out and stoned, if they took up a huge army and went out and destroyed Rome and drove them out. He believed that Rome was the worst thing that could happen. Rome was Gentiles, idolaters, cruel and hateful, and anything justified, anything to get rid of them would be justified. The interesting thing is both sides had valid points when it came to the law. Both sides traditionally would have viewed the other as an enemy to be destroyed, disfellowshipped, and have nothing to do with. But both Matthew and Simon sat at the feet of Jesus because when they saw Jesus, they saw that they served a far greater king. Because human nature is what it is, they both, like, they both most likely kept remnants of their old way of thinking. But both sat at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus taught them both. And he taught them both and clothed them both with his perfect righteousness. And they learned at his feet and they learned from one another. And they both grew and were filled with the Holy Spirit and came to a better understanding. And they both finally recognized that they served a greater king of a greater kingdom. And that the question above all questions was not whether publicans were right or whether zealots were right. The most important question of all of them was this one. But how can I be righteous before God? That question, when you answer it right, is the only way we can have peace with God and with one another. God designed the church in such a way that there is no one person, no one denomination, and no one building that has the monopoly on the truth. He designed the church to listen and to learn from one another. We aren't designed to walk in lockstep. 
but to humbly listen to each other and grow together. 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the body. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And how ridiculous it is for the ear and the foot to argue with each other because one is not the other. We were designed to listen to each other, even those with whom we strongly disagree. But because we don't understand how a man is justified before God, we often become proud, refuse to listen to those that we formerly called enemies. We won't talk together. We don't bear different viewpoints. And it's getting worse and worse. And we say, this is the way it is, and anyone that disagrees with me is an enemy to be destroyed. And so the body is torn apart from within as we anathematize one another. We throw each other out of the body. We argue over how to raise your kids, how to vote, how to eat and drink with the proper sorts of people. The things that divide us drive us farther and farther and farther apart. And the heart of it is we don't have the right view of justification. My only righteousness before God is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's given to me and it's given to you. You also are one for whom Christ died. The only righteousness that can save the publican is the exact same righteousness which can save the Pharisee. Without that righteousness, I have the same chance of acceptance before God as the most vile sinner I can imagine. That's why they crucified Christ. Because if the gospel is true, the tax collector is accepted by God, and the Pharisee cannot accept that. Doesn't God know what kind of person that is? Doesn't he know that that's not the right sort of person? It's the reason that Cain killed Abel. It's the reason Luther was excommunicated. It was the reason Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake. That's the offense of the cross. It's where we have to stand. Or we are no longer a church. This thought is so crucial that it was worked into the liturgy of the church from the earliest centuries. In Greek, it's the only part of the modern Roman mass that's in Greek. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. Worked into the liturgy. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. To remind us that this is the continual prayer of every believer, the cry of the soul, the prayer that God hears, and the prayer that God answers. Alfred Edersheim again, and while the Pharisee felt no need and uttered no petition, the publican felt only need and uttered only petition. And the publican was answered with the blood of Christ covering sin, the water washing it away, the garment of salvation covering us from head to toe, joining us together, and he's making all of us beautiful, and all of us will stand around God's throne with this tax collector. And also with harlots, with thieves, with revilers, with murderers, with insurrectionists, with Republicans, with Democrats, and with Libertarians. All who cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. All of them just like me, loved by the Father, washed by the blood of the Lamb, sanctified by his word and spirit, 
Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, humble our hearts. Cause us to reach out to one another in love, in understanding, knowing that our neighbor is a sinner just like we are sinners, needing the blood of Christ alone. Forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and teach us to call out to you daily for mercy, knowing that you grant it freely. Let us never be confused, confounded, driven away. And Lord, never let us act on what is in our own hearts, but we pray that you would fill us with your word and with your spirit, that we might humbly bow before you and serve one another in love. In Jesus' name, amen.